when we have stories that are very personal to us and mean a lot to us, we have to be very careful who we sell them to. Because you could sell your 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 story and whoever buys it can put out a great press release and pat themselves off on the back and then never make it. And once you've sold it, it's almost impossible to get it back. And so I would want to find partners who are committed to not only like to really making it and getting it out there. Um, I do not have those partners yet. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queer as Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist. We're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you... Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want 
to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram, all of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Also, I'm really excited to announce that the December book club choice is Britney Spears's The Woman in Me memoir. So to join the book club, head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there just so I know how many of you are joining the book club. And that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas. So don't worry, it's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be joined with an author who has a very storied career and an exciting career. So I'll introduce that aspect of him first, but I'm joined with Rashid Newson, who is a writer, producer of Bel Air, which is currently streaming on Peacock. Um, the Chi and Narcos. He currently resides in Pasadena, California with his husband and two children who I know before I hit the record button, he had just sent off to school. So uh, nice and probably quiet now in the household. Um, My Government Means to Kill Me is his debut novel. And I'm going to hold it up here. It's a beautiful pink, black, uh, rainbow texture on the front cover. And it's actually My Government Means to Kill Me, a novel. And the only reason I'm going to say a novel is because we're going to dig into the genre of his book, which is a very intersected blending of genres, which I love. So Rashid, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, so right away, I just have to ask you, how long have you been in the Hollywood, the film, the writing industry? I moved out here uh, a year after I graduated college. I was like 22. And uh, so it's been half my life at this point. I'm 44. Um, in LA, it's pretty much the only job I've ever had. I was, um, I've been an assistant at pretty much every lot. I worked as a production assistant on a couple shows, uh, like the Bernie Mac show. Um, and then I finally got into the writer's room 
when I was like 29, I, I got my first job as a staff writer on Lie to Me. And so I've been a member of the Writers Guild for 15 years. I loved the Bernie Mac show. Oh, I miss Bernie. Okay. I was Bye. I was I was there a very short time. I was there for um a showrunner who only lasted a few months. Uh and I lasted even less time than that. I was uh, the assistant to the showrunner and I'll tell you how he fired me. I once heard someone telling this story at a Hollywood party and I turned around and I said, "That was me." Um I was working very hard to please this person who had a list of demands that were as long as my arm. And on the day they fired me, they said, Rashid, on a scale of one to 10, I think you're a nine, but I really need a 10. And wow. with that, I was fired. Well, did you, so I'm assuming you grew up in the Northeast just because of your book, but you may not have. So like, where do you originally hail from? I come from Indianapolis, Indiana. Wow. Okay. So not New York City. Not I had pinned you as a New Yorker. Um so was that always this Midwest then dream of I'm going to land in the glitzy Hollywood backlot not studio? Really. It, not really. I mean, when I was growing up, I wanted to be, I, I showed a talent for writing and people told me, you're going to be a lawyer. That's what that meant in the Midwest. Oh, you'll be a great lawyer. And I thought, well, I, well, okay. And, and I went to DC. Um, I went to, I attended Georgetown and like law was sort of on my mind. And I also enjoyed politics and advocacy. So I worked for a lot of nonprofits, writing press releases and reports and ghostwriting speeches for the leadership. So writing had a had a real use in my my work life out there. But then the creative side of writing was always sort of interesting to me. And in college, I fell in with all the kids making short films. Um, so I thought, well, I'll try it. And I really came out to um, L.A. thinking, well, I'll give it a year or two. I could always go back to D.C. if this didn't work out. And I ended up sticking around because I always believed that success was going to happen in like the next three months. You know, every time I thought I should pack it in, I was like, well, no, you've got that contest you entered. Let's see if you win that. I mean, you should stay. So eventually it did work, but it took, you know, seven years before I got my first writing job. Well, you're an executive producer of Bel Air. So I think it did work. It uh, did Rashid. work out. It, worked it out. did work out. I mean, but like you've said, you've had a journey and, you know, you didn't instantly become an executive producer. Like, I know. And even and if, at, yeah. if at 22, someone said it's going to take seven years, I might have thought differently about it. Um, I might have also thought differently about it if someone had told me that, you know, President Obama was coming. You know, I, left DC during the, you know, uh, you know, the second Bush's second term. And I didn't necessarily see Obama on the horizon. And then I, you know, years later, I had friends who worked in that administration. And I thought, well, I could have done that if I had stuck around, but I, I'm happy with my choice. So how do you find the LA, the writing scene? I mean, I always have these nostalgic views of once upon a time in Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard, even without the death at the end um, of those writers that just the frenzy in the air. Like, I think that's just our image, even from the Northeast, because 
we have views of Hollywood and how it differs from New York City culture or even, you know, Philadelphia. Like, it's just a very different city. Um, is it a place where, you know, now with your debut novel, you feel really supported when it comes to the creative writing, even when it's outside of the film TV industry? Well, yes, that was, I mean, that was part of, that was very lovely. I mean, the, sh the book came out and there were a lot of my friends who worked in TV, work in television in front of the camera, behind the camera, came out and were very supportive and lovely and um, helped give the book a real boost. Um, it is though very clear to me, I mean, at this point, like I said, I've spent half a lifetime out here. Uh, I am I am more Californian than I probably am, you know, a, a Hoosier anymore. Um, I love this atmosphere. This is where a lot of the big dreamers come to make that happen. Um, I there's a, there's just an abundance of talent. I tell people the sad the only sad thing about Hollywood, one of the sad things about Hollywood, is there aren't nearly enough jobs for all the people who are deserving, and that has its own frenzy and its own anxieties attached to it. But by and large, you know, it's it's a good community and it's more of a community than I think people imagine it to be. Um, you know, we I, mean, I think the sign of our unity was just sort of there for the world to see during this strike, which we won. So we we do we do have uh, it's not as cutthroat, I think, as sometimes the movies make it out to be. It can be competitive. It is competitive when we want a job. But that isn't all of our lives. I mean, every successful writer I know has several sides to them that have nothing to do with writing. What do you mean by that, Rashid? Well, they have other interests. I mean, they're not always, you know, they, we don't just always talk about the business every time we get together. Um, you know, my writing partner, TJ Brady, is great at fly fishing uh, and surfing. Uh, I am a minor art collector. Um, and, you know, I'd say like, you just, you do have other parts of your life that you're really into. Well, because you did bring up the writer's strike, something that since you are, you know, sitting virtually across from me, I feel that you could gain, we could gain so much from your perspective and your industry knowledge, which is just, I was curious whether you think the writer's strike and sag after strike and even now the automobile workers strike, yeah. like it just seems that strike is in the air. There's something, it's not just tied to the Hollywood industry. It does seem like it's rippling, right? In my opinion, it's Hollywood is the, um, an emblem in a way of America's frustrations or the workers' frustrations, you know? I mean, I think, I think workers in general are very much aware of how they're being exploited and they're tired of being patted on the head and told, well, this is just the way it works. I mean, when you pay the people at the top 300 times what you're paying the people who do the work on the factory line or create the thing you're selling, um, that's just grossly out of whack, you know? And it's weird to watch those people make so much money and spend so much money and then claim poverty when we want a pay raise that's, that's anywhere near in line with what they're receiving. Um, I think you're, I think we've, I think people were driven to this point in large part because even the salaries we, we have had weren't giving us the security we deserve. And in a lot of ways, going on strike 
wasn't that much more harrowing than how we had been living from job to job. Well, even in academia, like I just got my PhD, so I feel I'm processing and synthesizing my experience, which was full of highs and lows, a lot of highs for my own authentic journey, but it also gave me this entrepreneurial spirit to go against the grain. Um, but academia has its, you know, like every industry, it's that same um, toxic work culture in a way of those at the top, you're seeing their lifestyles and just thinking, wait, but why do we have all these adjunct faculty or why do we have exploited contracts with, you know, professors? Well, well, or, well, yeah. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I think what what the common ingredient in all of these places is the institution says to the worker, you're lucky to have this job. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to take this abuse and this low salary for the glory of working at our institution. You know, no, 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 you put this on your resume and down the road, it'll all cash out. It'll all, and it doesn't. You just go from one institution to another where they're just like, where they all sort of go, well, aren't you happy to be, you know, that we're letting you do this. TJ and I've had job offers in our career where they wanted us to, you know, sort of go back a step or hold at the same title or didn't want to pay us more. And their excuse was, but you get to work on this beloved franchise. You get to work on this mm -hmm. lovely, you know, sort of property. And it's hard, but you have to go, no. How about you'd be lucky to have our talent reanimate that thing? And this is what we're going to get paid. It's, it's amazing that, you know, when you're at the very um, beginning of your creative career, when people are making short films and it's just a guerrilla crew sometimes at that stage you'll say look i don't have any money to pay you but but it, but this will be good for exposure and you can put this on your credit and that's when you again you, you're you're funding things on your credit card to have these multi-billion dollar institutions essentially say the same thing i can't pay you what you're worth but this will be really good exposure for you is ridiculous yeah i remember when I was asked to do this course at the university for like adult learners. And I was trying to negotiate my salary. And I could tell that the person who um, was asking for my assistance as a PhD student was surprised that I was even able to negotiate. Like I think was so taken aback because it was coming from that mindset, like you said, Rashid, of well, you should just be happy you asked. And I said, well, I'm at the end of my um program. And this is how much you get paid for a course like this. And this is my um, you know, negotiating salary. And I ended up not having a follow-up conversation. And I was okay with that because Eventually, I've figured out my self-worth is more important and my projects that I'm invested in are more important than feeling like I'm being used by an industry, which, you know, is why I now can sit with you and have this conversation. Again, it's not like the university is not part of my life or um, that I can enter back into it. I just think for my own peace and security and happiness, 
I needed to go into an entrepreneurial way. And it does, in my opinion, um, help others see that you can do things with academic expertise that doesn't just involve the university. So I'll, I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm curious to see here in Hollywood what it's like when we start making deals, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one level for our projects going forward. Because something I thought happened during the strike, which was really nice and unexpected, is people started being very candid about what they were paid. And that's important because you know, we've all sort of been taught that it's it's crass to talk about money and we don't do that. And I'm from the Midwest. We never mention money. But because you're we're not having those conversations, the institutions, the studios, the networks can really can really manipulate us because we're not informed. And so I had heard, oh, well, this studio never pays showrunners more than this. Mm -hmm. And other people are like, oh, yeah, I heard the same thing. And then one person goes, well, actually, they tried that with me and I refused. And, you know, they paid me more. And then you realize, okay, wait a minute. So that's that's not a hard rule. We could negotiate past that point. And you and it, nothing is better than when you can, I mean, when you're in business affairs and you can say, I know you paid so-and-so as much. When you can point to precedent, they have to come up with another reason. They, they always come back to you with, we don't ever do this. This is beyond what we've ever paid anybody in the history of show business. And the moment you can say, you can call them on it and say, I know you paid so-and-so more, they fold pretty quickly, but you have to know that. And I think we come out of the strike having had very candid conversations about not only money, but work-life balance. You know, I there's a writer I ran into. She has a clause in her contract that says she has done at six o'clock. What? That's wonderful. I thought, well, you could put that in the contract. You can go. And she goes, it's great. Because now she's not running the show, but she's on a show. And I've been on shows where they're going, you know, you're sitting there going, oh, sorry, everyone. We're going to get the dinner menus. You know, we're going to have to work into the night. And she says, it's not, it wasn't enough to just have an understanding with the showrunner. Oh, I've got a family life. I need to leave at six. Because then you have to go up and say, well, you know, I, just to remind you, I'm it's six o'clock and I got to go. No, no, no. It's in her contract. So at six o'clock, she doesn't check in with anybody. You know, she grabs her purse, she gets her keys and she leaves. Oh, brilliant. Well, and those boundaries, like, especially those who are listening right now, I'm sure there's so many who are early in their creative careers. And the promise of the carrot in front of you is really manipulative, like you've said. But there's something so freeing about knowing that you can make, and it's hard to say that that security is so prescient in your mind of maybe thinking that you're not going to be secure if you don't go through with a job offer. But like you said, Rashid, knowing each other's salaries, I mean, that's where the university, they're luck, we're lucky in a way because public universities, the that's salaries public. are public. Yes. But not everyone talks about it, but I'll actually bring up and say, oh, did you know that like a first year faculty member is making $50,000, which is a real salary? I didn't just pull that out of thin air. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, that's when I just took a pause and thought, oh, I'm starting consulting with people. And maybe I could actually pull together that kind of salary and maybe teach on the side at a university just because of the enjoyment of the classroom. And yeah, the work-life balance, that's where... 
I'm glad she has that in her contract because it could follow you every second. It is tricky. Like, I don't think you can probably walk in as a staff writer and say, I have a contract and I want to leave at six. That would probably be very hard. But what you find, even as you go up the ladder, is that there's sort of this effort to keep you feeling insecure. And at some point in your career, it should dawn on you that you are no longer some risk. You are no longer a kid they're taking a gamble on. You are a bankable asset. And that is when I think you can sort of say, this is what my life will be like. I mean, I also will admit that when I was a staff writer, I was not married. I had no kids. Um, my office was uh, about the size of my my the bedroom in my apartment. And the kitchen, the food at the show was better than anything in my refrigerator. So I was gleeful and happy in the beginning of my career to spend almost as much time. And I was learning so much. I was willing to be there a lot as I've grown older and grown and risen up the ranks. It turns out I was like, well, I, you know, I actually don't need to be here and watch them set the lights. I know what that is. I can go home now. So I, I do think there's, you have to kind of grow into your worth and your power. It is very hard in the beginning though. I will admit to just go in and make a thousand demands. Happy winter. Happy holidays. I hope you all are merry and bright out there. I am here in Port Jefferson, New York on Long Island in one of my favorite stores. It is the Soapbox NY, a Bath and Body Boutique. I'm here with one of the co-owners, Janine. Hi, Janine. Happy holidays. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Thank you. Good. So I know you have many winter scents to walk us through. So let's yes. get started because there's a lot to talk about and it's exciting so what is this that i'm holding this is a hand wash by one of our favorite companies greenwich bay uh, it's a gingerbread scent which is wonderful very christmasy very holiday-ish and you can follow it up by using greenwich bay's lotion is a hand and body lotion and to keep with that gingerbread scent is a um, sugar whip scrub it's a body scrub that you could use in the shower and it's by a company called primal elements and it's something I'm actually using currently. And I said to Janine, and she always laughs, uh, that I really feel like I'm in Santa's bakery. So, oh, it is so yummy. It's a good one. And then, what are these adorable little yeah. soap gifts? Jumping back to Greenwich Bay, this is a great little grab-and-go gift. Uh, great for a stocking stuffer. There are mini soaps by Greenwich Bay, and it just gives you a little sample of some of their mini soaps to try. Ooh, peppermint, yeah. mistletoe, holly. Yeah, it's wonderful. Cranberry. Yeah, and there's the some um, red in there too. And then what is this room spray? This is from company Michelle Design Works, another one of our favorites. Room spray that you can use any room in your house, just kind of freshens up the room a bit. And what is this by Michelle Design Also Works? by Michelle Design Works is Winter Blooms, one of their new scents this holiday season. It's great. It's um, a hand wash. You can use it in your kitchen or your bathroom. And then here's something to follow it up with. Exactly. It's a hand and body lotion. And then what is this beautiful decorative candle here? One of our favorites that we actually sell mm. all year round because it's so popular. This is the scent of Fraser Fur by Times. I think I'm becoming addicted to it. Yes. I think you are because you already own one, I believe. I own one and it is a decorative 
handle for me because I'm about to open it, but it's just in such I know the a beautiful is, package. I don't know what's better, the packaging or the scents. I'm using it wonderful. as a holiday decoration. So cool. I'll get to the candle eventually, yes, everyone. But it's wonderful because with Times and their Fraser fur, not only do they carry the candles, but they also make it in the scents in the diffuser, in soap, the hand lotion, the um, the hand soap. It's just a great line and a great scent. We're going to be Fraser fur uh, crazed this holiday season. I love it. And yeah. then what are these so adorable pajamas? My friends next to me, uh, a company called Hello Mellow. But these pajamas are so comfy. We have the t-shirts with the pajama pants. These happen to be the Nutcrackers, one of my favorite this holiday season. And then they have the night shirts too. And they're so comfy. And it says, oh, what, what fun, fun with the little Santa hat. Yes, and we have others as well. So Janine, how can everyone out there get their hands on your hand and body and even pajama products? Well, we'd be more than happy to see you in our shop. We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson Village. You could always call us to place an order. We're happy to ship to you. Our phone number is 631-509-1424. You can place an order on our website, soapboxny.com. And you could also find us on Instagram or TikTok at the soapboxny. So many options. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for all of you out there to just enjoy what I love so much about the Soapbox NY. So with yeah, that, thank you so much. Happy winter, everyone. And this is going to keep you all, especially in the Northeast, merry and cheery with our cold, dark days. Yes, I know they're coming, unfortunately, but we'll yeah. survive. But this will get you that pep right, in your, your spirits. Step. Exactly. I think so too. Yes. There we go. Happy yes. holidays. Happy Bye, holidays. everyone. Thank you. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Well, and I do want to bring up, especially when it comes to boundaries that you set in your life, um, that our identities, I would say, are a major part of how you step into the room. So I don't remember exactly. I think it was the Hollywood Roundtable. I always loved watching. I love watching the Hollywood Roundtables mm -hmm. that happen. But Ellen Pompeo had really like spoken up about, you know, being a white woman and like saying that basically calling out 
the different production companies for saying they were diverse, but really meaning that they'll try to be diverse when it comes to cast, but it wasn't trickling down into the writers or the showrunners or the, um, you know, those in the staff positions. And, you know, I feel that I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you, Rashid, like, you know, especially as a queer black man, how is it when you like, do you feel that the advice oh, that you show to have... show, right? I mean, yeah. there are some shows I walk in and um, they're, they're doing what they should be doing. There's a lot of diversity. You feel included. You feel heard. And there have been shows I've been on where I felt like, oh, I'm here for window dressing. Uh, you don't stick around very long. You know, you kind of finish your season and you go. Um, there have been shows, I mean, there have been, there have been shows where I've been highly insulted in the room and, and have kind of, you know, crossed swords with other writers based on their assumptions. Um, it is, it is a lot of people coming from places. I mean, everybody's coming from their own background, their own history. And a lot of people have blind spots that they don't even know about. And they'll say something and I just sort of have to sit up and go, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? <laughs> you know, we and we have those conversations. It but it has been, it's really hit or miss. I mean, I must say, I mean, um, this is of course a liberal city and a liberal industry. That does not mean it's without its prejudices and its blind spots. And it's it's startling sort of when it comes up, but I've for better or worse, I've had a whole lifetime of experience confronting it and dealing with it. And so I just do. Well, and like, especially with, um, I should say, especially someone, again, talking about boundaries of people who try to take your energy, someone, one of my listeners or one of the listeners of the podcast said that I was pronouncing a word wrong. So for them, it's especially, uh, <laughs> again, I'm glad that they listen, but uh, moving along, I think that what you're really bringing to bear, and this goes into my government means to kill me is like just the way shows are really starting to transform in my opinion. Like I'm thinking of a show like Pose, which in my opinion is probably my favorite LGBTQ TV show it's in the great. last Steven, 10 years. Steven will be thrilled to hear that. That is wonderful. Oh, really? Oh, good. Wait, Steven is... Steven the... Canal, who uh, co-created that show, I mean, really came up with the idea for that show. And then uh, Ryan Murphy heard the idea from Steven and they joined together to bring it to, bring it to television. Yeah. Well, I thought but I would I would think of him as the creator. Yeah, it was executed wonderfully. And um, I actually might start rewatching because I'm rewatching Queer as Folk from 2000 right now on the podcast. So I, I saw might... that. I mean, yes. I, I mean, that was that was a touchstone for me. I mean, I, I grew up loving that show and 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 not it's interesting. I, I haven't rewatched it in so long. I mean, I'd be curious to see how much of it holds up. And some of the what we'll call the politics of the moment that we just sort of accept it because you're like, well, I'm, I've got a gay show. Let me just be happy with it. Uh, I'd be really curious to see how that how that's aged. Yeah, it's interesting. I think so far I'm only we're only a few episodes in or I've recorded a few episodes, I should say. And you can feel the pulse. I feel so much more of the awakening journey. 
Like it definitely has that I'm coming out very, mm-hmm. um, some shock value moments. But again, like you said, this is a touchstone for so many of us growing up. And it was the first uh, cable show that came out or, you know, subscription show that came out on Showtime that really featured all of these narratives. So I think it is, you know, interesting though, when it comes to like your, you know, being, so you are a co-creator, right? Of Bel Air? Yes. Okay. So I remember there's the storyline with Ashley, right? Ashley is 12 years old. Um, or when at the moment when, you know, she's interested in girls, she's 12 years, 12 years old, that it, it's interesting now and exciting. I feel what's so different than Queer as Folk is now we're in the moment of integrating queer characters into mainstream shows. Yeah. Um, that even like in the Real Housewives franchises, which I love the Real Housewives, there's like openly bisexual or lesbian women. And, you know, it's not like their show is just about lesbian women in Hollywood. Which but also, there could I mean, be that that, that yeah. was, I mean, doing that on Bel Air, it took a lot of intentionality and it was even a struggle. Like we had to very upfront say, this is what we wanted to do, that this was going to be a character beginning to question her sexuality and then coming to, you know, sort of land on the idea that maybe she was lesbian or bi and like what we you know, even in casting, we had to tell parents because the, the, the actress was going to be underage. This is what we're doing with this storyline. We are interested in someone dealing with their sexual identity even before they are sexually active, which is a piece of the story I thought is often missed. Like normally people, the way the stories are told is no one sort of comes into their sexual identity until they fall in love and want to sort of act on it. But a lot of us, before we, we before we understood what sex really was, we're already grappling with our sexual identity. We were we were grappling with attraction, even if we didn't know what grownups did behind locked doors. And that's the story we want to tell. So we're like, this is they're never going to there's never going to be an explicit scene with this child, but we want to have this conversation. And some families, some actresses, took themselves out of the running when they heard that, said, we don't believe in that, we won't be, no, 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 not our child, right? Uh, I was very glad we got Akira in the role who, again, understood fully what we wanted to do. Now, I tell, so I'm very proud of that storyline and that's, and I'm, it, it's still running. What I wanted to do, <laughs> which was probably too radical for the franchise and, and you know, the outlet, um, was I wanted to, over the course of five or six seasons, tell a trans story I wanted this character to go from questioning to lesbian to then questioning their gender identity and then beginning that transition Um, if you watch the uh, original series towards the end they had a a son they got another kid named like Nick I wanted um, I wanted the character to transition into Nick by the end that is I, that is not on the table. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, like, I think sometimes people look at Hollywood and they think those of us who are queer have like a free hand and we're just doing what, we're just going around with a magic wand, making everything just as queer as we want. No, 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 no. This is, there are still a lot of conversations about 
how much the audience will accept how much of um how much the network and the studios are comfortable with and in a way that i will grant as somewhat legitimate there becomes the question of the balance of the show there are some storylines which are really great and interesting but if you add them to the show it will throw off the entire weight of the enterprise like the audience is suddenly going to be much more interested or divided or whatever like this will consume the rest of the mm. canvas um i still wish we'd done it but you know yeah. i i i have a lot of battles and i just remind people i probably yeah i probably lose more than i win and i i have a good batting average but it's like it's, it's like baseball for all the baseball fans who are listening you know if you um <laughs> if you can successfully you know get on base at bat get at bat get on base a, more than a third of the time you're going to go to the hall of fame so I, I think of it that way and you're saying that there were no qualms or surprises that of course i think it was out magazine who weighed in about like there are the supporters of ashley's storyline and then there are the detractors but i feel that when you bring up an idea like that and you see it to fruition this is not a shock like Ryan yeah. Murphy's not shocked that some people don't understand the eccentric American horror story storylines. Like I, I feel when you take those chances. No, it's it's not it's not a shock. And yet it does. I mean, you know, we were people will say, oh my goodness, they're look at them grooming. And I thought, mm. oh I, like we've been so clear about this, that this is about sexual identity and not sexual activity that no one here is going to ask, you know, this young character to have, you know, a love scene or a sex scene. No, we're not doing that. But the reality is at this age and even younger, people begin to realize that they're not heterosexual. Mm -hmm. And that deserves to be discussed and seen and examined. Yeah, like if she had all of a sudden gone to Las Vegas on the strip or something. Like, yeah, I mean that would be. I mean be... that would be. That's a different show, and that's not our show, yeah. and that wouldn't be yeah. appropriate for our show. But yeah. her coming to—I mean, one of my favorite scenes was you get the idea that her mother, that Aunt Viv, knows, and Aunt Viv is even inviting her to have the conversation, and she's not ready yet, and Aunt Viv has to respect that. You know, and I just, I mean, those things happen where you're kind of like, okay, do you want to, oh, you're not ready to talk. Okay. You know, she'll tell her sister, but she's not ready to tell her mother. And I just loved all of that. Did you have anyone from the original, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air weigh in on not even just Ashley's storyline, but just on how the show entered into a new phase and this revival? Oh yeah. I mean, we had, we had, a, we had a ton of support. Um, I mean, DJ Jazzy Jeff, during season one, did the official podcast and would just rave about how happy he was that that our that our jazz was uh, dating Hillary. Um, we had, um, you know, the second Aunt Viv came on and did a cameo in season one. Uh, the original Ashley came into season two for a cameo, and those were those were all fun. Just those were great roles. Yeah. Well, in your novel, I actually think that. I can, hearing you talk so much about the beauty of what happened or what's continuing to happen with, you know, the evolution of Bel Air is you though, 
in your novel, you look at the messiness of identity. Like you look at these gradations of, because yeah. I think a lot of the times those who are outraged or you could say the ones who believe in some grooming narrative, which, you know, we could pull apart is completely um, bullshit. But you're really looking though at your central character, Trey, turning away from his wealthy family in a trust fund. Yeah. And, you know, he's a queer black man who actually comes from wealth. And we really haven't seen that storyline. Like, I know you're um, an admirer like myself of James Baldwin, but it's very different than a narrative we get with James Baldwin. Like, we're we're not getting the down on your luck or even passing by now, you know, um, Nella Larson. We're not getting even yeah. those kinds of narratives of survival. Like he literally is choosing to go on an awakening journey. He's he's choosing to go on this sort of awakening. It's this coming of age story. And it's also just trying to reset what he thinks he's about to receive as a gay black man in the mid eighties. His assumption coming out of Indiana and coming from money is if I just get to New York, everything will fall in place. And if I just get to New York, I will be in this sexual playground. And he's probably just a few years too late there. I mean, you know, had he shown up in like mid seventies, New York, he'd probably had more of that feeling. He doesn't know how history is about to change everyone's life. And he gets there in the mid eighties and it's sort of the dawn of the AIDS crisis. And I love how that changes him again the other thing that I wanted, and this is why he comes for money, is it gave him a steeper learning curve. The money insulated him and it makes him more naive. I mean, he doesn't just come to New York um, with fantasies of making it big. He comes to New York not knowing how to cook for himself or operate a laundry machine. Like he really has to figure out how to put every aspect of his life together. Um, and I do enjoy the fact that like he did this thing that, um, you know, when you have money, you think, well, I don't really need money. I could do this. I could, I'll just, you know, it's always been there. So you just assume you'll be able to make more. Um, that's just fun too. And it, it, it pairs him well with the other, uh, one of the other leads in the book, Gregory, who is a sex worker and has been poor and abused and thrown out of his house for being gay. And to have these two people meet and form this friendship really gave the the book its heart. And was it something of concern for you to really like make sure that what you were doing, because you can feel it in the pulse of your book, that it's not sanitized, like that you're not, oh, yeah. you are looking at the hustler of Gregory, like you're looking at the drug culture, that what's actually those who are still having sex, but you know, AIDS is ravaging the community, but they're not going to listen to Larry Kramer's advice. Well, there's, I mean, that's the, the thing that really hit me is I feel like the further we get away from a, a situation, the more truth we can tell about it. Uh, we find this in our family histories where 20 years later, grandma finally tells you what happened that night. And you find it in just our shared history politically uh, where you go, okay, that, that was the story. And if you look at, and I understand why these narratives emerged and some of them were even true. When you look at the, the early works about people during the AIDS crisis, the central character is normally someone who is chaste, 
or in a committed monogamous relationship. So they are insulated. And I, I mean, I don't think at this point it's a secret that even during the AIDS crisis, gay men kept having sex. Mm -hmm. Some of it protected, some of it unprotected. That doesn't make them somehow deserving of this horrific disease. Like I'm just done with that idea. And so my character still engages in sex while this is happening. That is not, um, to me, that's not a mark against them. That's a truth. That's, I mean, and, and, and I think one thing that was sort of happening while I was writing this book is we were going through COVID and I felt the heterosexual world owes the queer world an apology because we had this, we had this pandemic where they told everybody stay away from each other. Don't, don't get near these people, right? Just have some self-control. It turns out the urge of people to get together, to commingle, to have sex is incredibly strong. It is not something people can just turn off. Even under the threat of death, we are social creatures. Now, I would like people to be as responsible as possible. I would like people to take care of themselves, but I do not judge human beings for acting like human beings. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone.
Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions and how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this Gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. That is so beautiful, Rashid, to say and like to have as a message. I mean, I always advocate learning, even with COVID, like knowing about risk factors, like at least to have the knowledge yeah. of what you're going into. Like that's even with unprotected sex. Like if you're on prep, just know, okay, that doesn't mean though I can't contract other STIs outside of HIV. Like just yeah. know you know, check up with your doctors. Like there are ways to mitigate risk factors. Yes. Um, so in your book, what I love is it's not only a fictional novel, it is an annotated memoir turned into a historical fiction novel. So like we get Trey's memoirist style with all of these footnotes that you have so beautifully on your TikTok, which I have the link in the show notes to your TikTok because it's a masterpiece of a TikTok, in my opinion. That is you, my husband. My husband creates those videos. Well, they're good. The person who has made that uh, glorious. Well, they're beautiful. And you literally go through every footnote on TikTok. And um, I'm just curious, how did the footnote idea, like did the footnote idea start first with trying to trace the history that Trey's encountering or did the idea of having a fictional memoir start? The fictional memoir started first um, because I thought I thought I could write very strongly in first person, very directly in first person. Um, and I also liked Trey's attitude and voice. And so that was like easy to get onto. I it became more of a memoir as opposed to a book. Like he it's it's about his life in the mid 80s, but he's looking back. 
as opposed to hearing the voice of, I think we meet Trey, he's like 17, and you stay in that voice for the next two years. I could have done that, but I wanted the perspective of someone who was older. You know, I wanted someone who could reflect on what they'd went through a little bit, as opposed to just experiencing it for the first time as a 17 year old. I wanted a little more, I wanted some more layers. So it became first person memoir. So that's happened. And then the footnotes happen because I kept finding myself needing to explain the context in which he is landing in the, you know, LGBTQ plus movement at that particular time. Like, you know, it's impossible to sort of appreciate what ACT UP is going to do if you don't know, like, who the Mattachines were. Like, if you don't know what had, what had, ha what are they displacing, right? And it was sort of messy to have that in the prose. And so the footnote idea came. I also love books with footnotes. <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of, um, and also the other thing I thought of is like, I think some readers didn't need some of these footnotes or a lot of these footnotes. Like if you'd lived through it, it would be annoying for me to tell you who Larry Kramer is. But I'm also very cognizant that we don't teach this history um, very well or very often. So you could be a queer young 21 year old who's aware that Larry Kramer is a gay rights activist, but have no sense of Larry Kramer's personality, which to those of us who know Larry Kramer's personality is amazing. It's astonishing that you wouldn't know that, but who would have taught you, right? So I needed some sort of in-between that didn't annoy people who knew what was going on or got it, but also didn't leave other people out and the footnotes sort of did that. It's also another writer's trick. And this is, this is something I enjoy from a craft perspective. This is what's amazing to me about all novels. We tell you at the beginning, I mean, on the front of the book, it says a novel that this is, you know, this is fiction. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is going to be fiction. And yet we are doing everything we can to make you feel it's real. And there is something about footnotes in a document that make it feel more official, that tell your mind, well, this is serious. There are footnotes here. <laughs> and so I knew that if I put that in, it would, it would help readers fall deeper into the idea that this is a legitimate memoir of somebody who, who lived through this. It gives Trey authority, um, the authoritative voice. And I have to bring up, I love, I'm not sure, you know, hopefully you enjoyed it. I know not every writer wants to read reviews, but the New York Times, I just love the metaphor that Daniel Nee used when he wrote that having a novel so emboldened on your cover is like, Beholding a box of frosted flakes, we might confidently project the absence of milk berries and tigers within, like meaning that the serving suggestion on the front of a cereal box, it's usually like so small because you kind of expect uh, you'll know what you're going to eat just by seeing yeah. the image on the cereal box that he I, I like it all makes sense of how you really want the reader to question the genre yeah. and question like, well, but this is supposed to be fiction, but why does it so palpably feel, have that realistic energy? But it makes sense because that's what you're doing in TV as well. It's the glamorizing of what is acting, but if you want it to feel 
as realistic, even if it's a sci-fi um, horror journey. Like you still want the emotions to be real. I mean, I always, sometimes, you know, it's hard during COVID, but sometimes you'd bring people to set, like friends, and they'd see the set of the house and they'd go, oh, I just thought you shot in a real house. Mm. Right? And I'm like, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're that's what we're going for. Like, the, it, it sometimes it shakes the audience to realize, like, oh, yeah, no, we made all this in a soundstage over on the Universal lot. Um, but that is part of the magic, is if we're doing our job well, you forget. And I am playing with this idea that like, I've got, it's historical fiction as well. So some of these events took place and you might've heard of some of them. And so it gives credence to everything else. Like, right, like what I want is you to almost not be able to tell what's real and what's made up. And your brain just sort of goes, well, why don't we just accept it all as real? That's that's where I'm trying to get you. And, I'm, and I've got a lot of, there's a lot of just craft stuff, like even where this book begins, um, you know, this book, which I'm proud to say has explicit homosexual activity in it. Um, but I didn't start with Trey in the bathhouse mm. because I thought, well, that's that's too far afield of most people's experience for them to open the door. I start with Trey moving to the city. And if you've ever moved to a new city, and you've got to find a place to live, you got to find a job, you got to find friends, you are connecting to Trey in those early pages. You're thinking about your own experience and your own time and how you went through it. And you are bonding with him. As the book progresses, he is going to begin to do things you couldn't do, didn't do. And, and hopefully you will stay with him because of that early bonding. But if I just sort of shoved you into the deep end of the pool, a lot of people wouldn't have made it. But those are all like craft decisions and they're very deliberate and I love watching them work. So also, by the way, I absolutely read reviews. I, I know people say you're not supposed to people profess that they don't. I can't help myself. Um, you know, I work, you work alone on these things for a very long time. I kind of want to hear what people think <laughs> and what they have to say. Um, I also work at television and I'm on Twitter. And the TV audience never spares us. Like, so I have, there's nothing anyone has said about this book that even can compare to the things people have attacked or said about some of the work I've done on television. I, I've been very lucky. Not everybody loves this book. It's not for, every, this book isn't for everybody. It's not asking everybody to love it. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the whole, the reviews have been very positive and I enjoy reading them. Well, and there's been multiple, not only Daniel from the New York Times, but Andrew Sean Greer, who I love his work. And yeah. he's like, we message on Instagram, but um, he, everyone is starting to latch onto your novel saying that it's uh, Dickensian. And I just love the word Dickensian. Like, I just wanted I mean, to right? ask your feeling about like how your novel is being seen in this, like, the queer black narrative journey, but it's a Dickensian throwback in the Victorian novel era. How does that register with you? Oh, it's, it's I mean, it's it, it's so fulfilling. It's so great. So let's talk about that moment where Andy, you know, Andrew Sean Greer uh, wrote that and it was one of the blurbs uh, for the book. Uh, they do that months before the books come out. And, you know, I had fantasized about having my own novel for a very long time. But there are just so many pieces to the experience that you don't, 
think about or envision. And this was one of them. Um, at some point they're like, we need to get blurbs. And a friend of mine, Ayala Waldman was like, well, I, I, I know Andy and sent it to me and we've got it over there. And I, it was done in a way where I thought this isn't going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I thought we're going to ask, he's got to be busy. It, you know, and then I woke up, I, I used to have uh, meetings with my editor at six in the morning, my time, because she was in New York. And I also happened to be running a television show at the time. So 6 a.m. was the perfect time before my kids were even awake to have these meetings. So I get up 10 minutes to six, I'm on the computer and the email has come in from Andy, who I think was in Italy at the time. And it's this wonderful paragraph explaining how he felt about the book. And then here was the blurb. And I just started crying. I love his work. I love Les. Beyond, I mean, like, like what he said was great, but like I was choked up. I'm like, he read my book. He took the time to read my book. I, you know, you you can't in those moments, you can't believe that that's happening. And it was so lovely. And it was before the book had come out. And I tell you, I held on to that because. As you go through it, there are all these moments of fear. And I could go, well, Andrew Sean Greer liked the book. <laughs> I've, I'll always have that. That's a great, you know, pat on the back, uh, Rashid. Oh, uh, but you also, what I love is your fans of um, My Government Means to Kill Me. There was this one recent video that's been circulating and you circulated it about political butt stuff. They're like, yeah. he says, oh, there's butt stuff, but it's political butt stuff. And I was just curious. Um, it does tie into, yeah. you know, the explicit you have no problem looking at Trey's explicit sexual activity. Like you've said, Gregory, I mean, is a hustler, he's a hustler, but there's something tied more as there always is. Like sex is not just the embodied and an yeah. erotic pleasure. It is tied to our identity and our politics. So like- It's a political act. Mm -hmm. Our sex lives have been politicized. They were made illegal. They were prosecuted, right? So when you when we were having sex, that is a rebellion. I mean, sometimes you are breaking the law as you do it, you know? Um, and that isn't to be sanitized away. That's an important part of the story. The thing I keep sort of saying is sex is not frivolous. You know, who told us that? It's not some selfish thing. It's 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 how we connect to other people, sometimes deeply, sometimes briefly. But, you know, as long as it's consensual, it can be quite lovely. And 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 I, I don't see any reason to shy away from it. And shying away from it is a political act. It's saying that something is happening that we can't really look at and address. And that really knocks me out because violence isn't policed the same way, right? Like somebody writing about war or, you know, rape or murder can be incredibly graphic. And I'm not saying we should look away from those things either, but it's interesting that people come knocking on the door of sex a lot more than they knock on those other doors. Um, and it just drives me nuts. And I'm like, this is an adult book. We, I assume my readers are adults and they understand what goes on between people. And what am I trying to protect them from? What am I, what am I sort of turning the camera away from or, or, or bringing down the scene? So I, I want all that.
imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic Movie Great Movie Ride in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bangle, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Mated. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Mated. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. I know Mandy would love that. And I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill. And she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. Also, I wanted a book and this is 
you know, it seems to be okay if you write a book that if I was writing a horror book, I wanted to scare you, people would understand that. If I was writing a romance, I'd want you to maybe cry and be all this. Why can't I write a gay book that's sexy? Why? I mean, I I, I want people, I would love it if people were aroused by this book. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what horror I would, is. Yeah. yeah, horror is arousing. Yes. <laughs> and so I wanted well, something, I wanted something sexy and it's really hard to be sexy if you're only hinting at it tell me what he did yeah just look at stephen king's novels everyone if you don't think there's sex graphic scenes it's all over i mean the psychological sex in the shining is it will stick with you um or carrie even um there's a lot happening but what i like as we're nearing the end which just just flew by rashid and i absolutely love talking with you um is you've been doing so many exciting author uh book interviews like pairing uh conversations at bookstores and i was just curious like are there any not your favorite author you sat down with because i would never ask you that but i am curious if having these moments of talking author to author and the conversations that open up around those opportunities if there was an author who helped you see an aspect of my government means to kill me that you were not aware of before you sat down. Oh, um, there are two that come to mind. So the look back window uh, by Kyle Dylan hurts. Um, it takes place at a different time than my government means to kill me. It's more contemporary, um, but it is also sexually explicit in a way that I think is welcome to the LGBTQ plus like genre. It feels like a conversation that's long overdue. Um, and I, it may, it, it's, it helped me appreciate that element of my government means to kill me. Like I sort of wrote my government means to kill me with a sense that like, well, let me just tell you the truth. And it's been interesting to have people go, oh, I'm, I'm glad you someone's finally said this or somebody finally said that. Um, and I felt with Kyle's book, with the look back window, it also was a conversation where it was like, oh, I'm glad we're finally having this talk around this topic. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but people should go read uh, the look back window. The other one is Disorderly Men by Edward Cahill, which precedes the events in My Government Means to Kill Me. This is you know, this is before Stonewall, but it's also in New York. And it is what I think what Edward does that I really like is he's speaking to characters who don't know how history is about to change. And it's a great reminder that some of the gains in our movement, you know, when you read history, history sort of taught to us that things are inevitable. But of course, that's not the truth. There are a lot of big surprises. There are a lot of big turns that two years before you wouldn't have ever thought were possible. And to live in the political time that Edward puts around his characters and disorderly men is I think a real good wake up call, especially to those of us who didn't live through that era. Um, I, think, I think we are losing our understanding of how oppressive the world was as we kind of work into new freedom uh not that we're not under attack but there's something about that period before stonewall which is really uh 
galvanizing and interesting to look at. And I, I like if I were gonna, if you're going to do a triple feature, here's what you do: read Disorderly Men, read My Government Means to Kill Me, and then read The Look Back Window. Yeah, and then maybe watch Moonlight. That's just my <laughs> yeah. Because I did want to end with, I have to ask you, of course, because you are in Los Angeles right now, yes. and you're in the industry. Is um, not about the La La Land and Moonlight Oscars controversy, which yeah. was an interesting experience. But um, in my opinion, what brings Moonlight to my mind when I think visually is just the poetic nature of that movie. Again, mm -hmm. it was written by a playwright, so it does have acts that are actually shown on the screen. Yeah. Um, it is a play, in my opinion. But it's so poignant and it reminds me of what happens with Trey which is just the awakening there's something just about someone coming to their own Ashley I mean we're returning to the yeah. beginning of the conversation is we always are looking towards someone's individual story like how they find out who they are and the authenticity so is there any hint or anything happening with my government means to kill me in the film tv universe well we've just we've just strike ended yesterday so we That's can start true. developing and that sort of thing now um i'm not i i'm not sure i mean the, that's the real answer um i think what makes my government means to kill me challenging is it's a period piece and you need two very young leads in trey and gregory who are black and queer and we have the talent for it there are a number of actors could play those roles and just kill it um, I don't think they're considered bankable in Hollywood, which is what we're seeing. I'm also not sure what era we're about to enter into. I mean, I think people who've been following the strike may know there's a real concern as we come out of this strike that people of writers of color, people of color, uh, queer people and their stories are going to find it hard to remain in the mix. Uh, everyone sort of expects there to be consolidation among the networks. Everyone imagines that we're going to be making less as we go forward. And what we will be making are things that they think, you know, reboots, franchises. Can the intimate story of two queer boys trying to make it in New York in the, you know, mid 80s find a life in the next few years? I'm not sure. I'm confident it will reach screen at some point. I'm not sure this is the environment for it. And to speak just frankly as someone who's you know black and queer, when we have stories that are very personal to us and mean a lot to us, we have to be very careful who we sell them to. Because you could sell your 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 story and whoever buys it can put out a great press release and pat themselves off on the back and then never make it. And once you've sold it, it's almost impossible to get it back. And so I would want to find partners who are committed to not only like to really making it and getting it out there. Um, I do not have those partners yet. Yeah. Well, let me just say, I'm so excited to actually see the Hulu um, trailer of the other black girl. I'm like, thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. Like it actually is there because you're right. I talk to authors all the time here and they say that the rights were sold, but then how many are actually going to make it through the process. And yeah. yeah, it's not a lot, um, unfortunately. But like you said, to weigh those decisions and also just having it, you know, having that story told 
in a, a novel form. Like sometimes that's what you want, you know. Yeah, like it doesn't. I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm, saying you have to turn it into something. No, absolutely. I'm. Yeah. I feel way out ahead. I'm glad that this. I mean, I had much lower expectations for how this book would be received. I mean, I. I'm glad the book was in hard and hardback. I thought we're gonna go straight to paperback. We'll be on the queer thing. When they were like, we're gonna sell it in Barnes and Nobles, I was like, really? You know? Uh, when they said, oh, the New York Times is gonna review it, I just fell over. I didn't expect um, that much uh, of a boost or a, a launch to the book. And so, yeah, I'm forever grateful. Yeah, well, and because you are a New York Times bestseller, right, we need to shout that out, Rashid. It also, those you're inspiring, your readership, like who knows, maybe this will inspire, I heard Unscripted TV is gonna is at its height. I mean, I think... Like you said, reboots. I also think reality shows are just going to tentacle. The tentacle is going to keep expanding. But maybe, you know, I think we need to see realistic narratives of queer Black men in their different stages. Like, we haven't really seen that on reality TV. So, you know, who knows? Whoever's reading your book, I'm sure I always love that about arts and culture is you're always inspiring those who are consuming. No, that would be lovely. I can't wait to find out who those people are down the road. They're so. out there. They're out there. I know it, Rashid. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I am so glad to have met you and continue to see what you do on social media. Thanks to your husband for your TikToks. Uh, but <laughs> everyone, My Government Means to Kill Me, a novel by Rashid Newson. There you go. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. I have a link in the show notes. I have a link to um, Rashid's website. It's also an audiobook. Uh, consume Bel Air um, on Peacock, right, Rashid? On Peacock. Okay, good, good. Okay, that's also where all my housewives are stored. Uh, so that's <laughs> an easy sell. Um, so thank you so much, Rashid. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, have a great day, Rashid, and bye to everyone out there. <laughs>